0: I want to extend a warm welcome to everyone myself, but also, very importantly, to Steve Alltop. It's great to have him as our guest organist today. Um, between services, we were talking about the fact that the number today is five. And I said, you know, I went down so many rabbit holes on this sermon of things that completely fell to the editing floor. But it was about, um, in, the early, in the early days, when you studied math, you studied music because there's such math built into music, because it's built into the way in which we hear and the way in which sounds are pleasing. And he said, Joe, you need to talk about a fifth being a perfect interval. And I said, yes, Steve, but then I'm going to show just how ignorant I am, because I can't say anything more than that. Uh, But Steve did a wonderful job of picking out um, uh, things with five for our offertory and for our prelude. And so there's certainly ways we could talk about five and math, and it would all be surrounding music. Five was a number of great comfort to the ancient Israelites. It is rich in nuanced meaning and implied comfort, but it doesn't point to any one single event or any one single meaning. Our scripture reading for today is a story, and I want you to know it's going to be embedded almost towards the very end, so don't get anxious thinking that I've forgotten to read it. I'm going to be building this up so that we can hear it with the ear of of an ancient Israelite. I don't want you to be anxious about that. But I would like you to please pray with me so we can ask God's blessing on our meditation. Dear God, we come before you seeking to be found. Silence in us the noise that surrounds us. And join our minds with your spirit so that we might find your truth. May we be startled by the grace of your Son in his gifts of nourishment and comfort. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now in our sermon series of counting on numbers, we're reflecting on numbers, obviously, and numbers are the playground of more than just mathematicians and auditors and accountants, and I know we've got many mathematicians and auditors and accountants in here, but math and numbers are also the playground for psychologists and neurologists and linguists and theologians, and the list goes on of those who delight in exploring how the the human mind responds to just plain numbers. Numbers cause us to believe in behave in ways with little regard to what the numbers are actually counting, so you need to think beyond the meaning of what's behind the number. So forget about a number expressing your income or your expenses or the number expressing the number of months before a beloved one comes home. Just a number by itself can either give us great comfort, and I mean the comfort that's down here, or it can really unsettle us. So let's make it personal. What's your favorite number? I want you to think about that. And if you get bored in the sermon, go think about your favorite number and come back because we'll catch up with you at the end. So what's your favorite number? And is there a number that really unsettles you? We asked the eight o'clock worship service that and they had some very diverse responses. Some had no favorite number, but you might by the end of the sermon. British science writer and a self-described math blogger by the name of Alex Bellows asked people to submit in an online survey their favorite number and an explanation of why. It was a very unscientific survey, but it garnered 44,000 responses, and some of them were quite varied and exceedingly tender. Here are some of the favorite numbers that were identified. One person said that 17 was her absolute favorite number because it takes 17 minutes to cook perfect rice. Another person said that 24 was her favorite number because she sleeps with her leg out in the shape of a four and her partner sleeps curled around like the number two. So 24 is her favorite number. And I said, Katie is probably gonna like this one that another person said six is their favorite number because in that respondent's album collection, the sixth track tends to be his or her favorite song on that particular album. When Harry Kramer was here a couple of years ago, he's um, speaking at our faith and leadership event. He is the uh, professor at Kellogg uh, University. Um, He's a partner, senior partner, managing partner at Madison Dearborn, former CEO of Baxter. He is a man who deals in numbers. His undergraduate from Lawrence University was in math, and he's had numbers rolling through his head his whole life and his career, whether it be EBITDA or EPS or anything else. He volunteered in that session of faith and leadership that he has a favorite number, and it happens to deal with the number of hours that you have in a work week. And it's not because he was always trying to get the most out of everybody, but he wanted to make sure that you knew just how precious your time is. You don't waste an hour with your life, with your family, in your job. You are supposed to value what God has given you, and you are the one that takes care of that as a steward. I have many favorite numbers, but 2126 is quite a favorite number. When my casual clothing is too worn to be worn out in public with friends, it becomes dog walking clothes. I can walk the dog and maybe I can go to Home Depot with them. But when my dog walking clothes become just too frayed in the pants or the sweater is too pilled for repair, but they're still really comfortable and I really like them, they become 2126 clothing meaning I am not allowed to wear them outside of the property line of our home, 2126 Fremont. For me, 2126 is a number of comfort. I have quite a bit of 2126 clothes that I hope you never see. I have a friend that she and her sister have a great fondness for the number 1437, and it's not because there's ever been anything in their life that's 1,437, but 1437 means always and only I love you forever. As a simple text, this number connects and comforts each one of them when they text it to the other. And psychologists would confirm that even when they see just a portion of this number, whether it be 437 or 143, that alone is going to lift their spirits because it's such a precious, comforting number to them. Since all their friends knew that their respective codes to get into their garages on the keypad that you've got in your garage, we knew it was always 1437, so we weren't surprised when their kids figured out 1437 unlocks their iPhones, but yet they seemed to be surprised. Some numbers are proven to make us cringe. Researchers asked participants in a study if they liked, disliked, or felt neutral for the numbers between 1 and 100 as they randomly appeared on a screen. You got to vote on it. Even numbers, and those ending in the number 5, are favorites, and nobody seems to like odd numbers very much. In another research study, double digits of negative numbers like 39 or 53 produce what's called an odd effect since it takes longer for our brains to process them, and we just don't like them. It takes 20% longer for us to look at a double-digit odd number. So I'll ask again, what's your favorite number? What number for you points home? And is there a number that implies comfort? Now, we know that humans have been counting and categorizing life events around the number five since we were able to grasp a paintbrush or hold a quill. As a species, we've relied upon our hand to help us to count to number five. We can remember things in lists of five. And the basis for our decimal system of 10 obviously derives from our two hands put together, and 10 is considered a complete number and a very pleasing number. You can only wonder if we had six digits per hand. Our decimal system might have been based upon 12. But we have five fingers. And five has become the number of choice for lists because we can count them and we can remember them. The ancient Hebrews became devoted to the number five in relation to the most sacred writings. The Torah, the most sacred books amongst them, is given in five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The first five books of our Christian scripture our Bible as well. Those five books are also called the Pentateuch, again pointing to five, or the five books of Moses because they contain the laws, the histories, and the guidance in everything you need to know to live a holy and just life before God. The Psalms are also divided into five sections, as is the book of Proverbs, five sections. Now scholars debate, and of course scholars debate, that's what they do, but scholars debate why five is so essential to the Hebrews. Is it sacred because there were five books and they put them together? Or did they take all of the ideas and then put them into five particular scrolls? We're not sure. Some claim that there are five scrolls and not three or an even number because they all want to point to the center book, Leviticus, with Genesis and Exodus on one side, and Numbers and Deuteronomy on the other, that they are framing Leviticus, which contains the laws of how you're supposed to live. And even within Leviticus, it's all framing around the very center verse in all of the five books, love your neighbor as yourself. One can say that the Torah all hinges on that one law, love your neighbor as yourself. And we get to five to remember that. Other scholars believe that the Hebrew letter in the alphabet, heh, is holy, and that happens to be the fifth letter. When God changed Abram's name to Abraham and Sari's name to Sarah, the heh was appended onto it, signifying God's blessing and their devotion to God. So for the ancient Hebrews, five turns the ordinary into holy. Five symbolizes order and structure, Five, leads us to love your neighbor as yourself. And five, always arouses a connection to God, who is our source for all comfort and security. Now, there's a professor at Harvard Divinity School by the name of Francois Bovan, and he writes, and let me quote him directly, The early Christians used the categories of name and number as theological tools Written with an economy of words, the texts they wrote give birth to the Christian faith needed to do double duty in expressing the life and ministry as Jesus, as well as the names and numbers are to point back to and reclaim ancient beliefs. So let's consider that in the Gospel of Matthew. You see, the Gospel of Matthew was written decades after Jesus' death, and it was written for a very largely Jewish audience for the purpose of convincing them to believe that Jesus is, in fact, the long-prophesied Messiah. Conceived in five sections, Matthew, the Gospel, mimics the five books of Moses, and Matthew paints an early portrait of Jesus' life to very much resemble Moses. Like Moses, Jesus' parents defy the authorities who sought to kill the infant. Like Moses, Jesus spends time in the wilderness before taking up his mantle to do God's will. Like Moses, Jesus goes through the waters, only it's the waters of baptism. And then like Moses, Jesus ascends to a mountain to teach. And in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus restores the laws of Leviticus from any of the corruption they had endured so that they again point to love your neighbor. Matthew reports in that sermon, Jesus quite specifically states, I have not come to abolish the laws and the prophets, I have come to fulfill them. And then like Moses, who called upon God to feed the wandering Israelites in the desert and received manna from heaven, Jesus will call upon God as he seeks to care for those who have gathered to follow him. So now, knowing what five means, knowing what's being built up in the Gospel of Matthew, I invite you to listen to God's word with the ears of a weary Jew as we read from the 14th chapter of Matthew. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is late. Send the crowds away so that they might go to the villages and buy food for themselves. And Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fishes. And he said, Bring them to me. And Jesus ordered the crowds to sit down in the grass. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he blessed and broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces and there were 12 baskets full. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Here ends our reading. So did you hear it? There were five loaves. Five loaves were enough to feed 5,000 of those followers with 12 baskets. It was like a neon sign for those Jewish listeners of the Gospel. The number five is God speaking to these Israelites, letting them know they are welcomed in God's care through Jesus. You see, by the first century, generation after generations of Jews had been persecuted, and they currently lived in an ethos of Greek and Roman gods who played people like pawns for their whims. And these gods supported the interests of political powers and those with the financial resources to offer elaborate sacrifices, and those other gods seemed to be winning. And if it wasn't enough to have those other gods, there was still the lingering memory of the, in that melu of the ancient philosophers who had gods that were dispassionate, called sterile names of the unmoved mover or the first cause, gods who were completely uninterested in the affairs of humankind on a daily basis. Matthew's writer is assuring the Jews that Jesus' blessing of five loaves and inspiring his disciples to feed 5,000 starved souls not only points back to all that has been, but also points to the fact that Jesus is indeed God incarnate to bring them comfort and new life. Now, we can never know the how of this miracle, but when we wonder of the why and the for whom, Jesus' saving acts reveals that God cares for those ancient Israelites and still cares deeply for those who are most vulnerable. Through Jesus, God places the task of feeding multitudes in human hands, demonstrating the possibility still exists for us to love our neighbor. So I'll ask again, what's your favorite number? Is it a child's birthday? Something about your mom or dad? Perhaps your favorite number reminds you of someone you love. Or maybe your favorite number is your handicap, or the handicap you once had when you were really playing golf well, or calling a time in which you were at your best. Favorite numbers tend to recall blessings and it gives us comfort. And the mere mention of a number calls us to remember who we are and whose we are. So maybe you can relate to the ancient Israelites and their devotion for five. And maybe you don't have a favorite number at all. So if you don't, when you feel vulnerable, look down at your hand and count to five. And remember when God was present with human hands, blessing bread, healing by a touch, and giving us clear direction and teaching us always to love one another. And when your mind is troubled and you don't know how you'll go on, join your hands together in prayer that the right hand of God will guide you, for you can always count on God. Please pray with me. Precious Lord, take my hand. Hold us through our fears. Comfort us with the assurance that you will never let us go. Precious Lord, lead us home. Amen.